Okay, I say that because we're going into 1 Corinthians today. We're starting a new letter, and if you'd like to follow along, we'll be looking at the first part of 1 Corinthians, and I'm really excited to do it. I, I think if you um, are familiar with the New Testament, then you already know that 1 Corinthians is the second longest Pauline letter after Romans. So it's a long letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. You know what? It is so easy to say, you and I, that we're imperfect. We are imperfect people. There's no perfect people. We, we're fallen or we fall down or fail. It's easy to say that. It kind of rolls off the tongue. But what I want to do today from this letter is to make sure you see from the Bible the foundation Paul's laying by which he's going to talk about how that matters in our family, in our church. It's a really interesting and important that we get in our heart what it means for Christians that we walk with people that we ourselves and other people are so crazy fallen. Um, if you miss this piece, this first foundational piece of 1 Corinthians, you might miss the whole letter. It's that important. So I really want to show you from the Bible that this is what Paul is thinking and this amazing thing that we think about how it is that we are a family sanctified by God and yet fallen people. And we do that with the letter to Corinth. I I know we just finished Colossians and if you walked with us through Colossians, you know that Paul was writing to a church that he didn't know anything about. He'd never been there. And so it was kind of nice because we felt like, well, he's never been to Grace Church Bellingham either and we could walk through how it's kind of general and those pieces fall on us. That's not true of this letter. Paul is intimately connected with the church at Corinth. Just to give you a little background and not till you're not totally ignorant if you haven't ever thought about Corinth before. So Corinth is where Paul went on his second missionary journey. It's this city. It's quite a bit bigger than Bellingham. We put it probably um, just under 600,000 people. And it was located on this isthmus of land with two seas on either side, two gulfs. And so it's this trading hub. That's where a lot of people came to do business. So you had a very wealthy, large city. Some one commentator said it's kind of like a mix of Paris and Chicago, um, a lot as well as you had some port people there. A mix of nationalities, a mix of different ethnicities, and all these people making money. It wasn't known like Athens was known for its high intellectual arguments and things like that. It was known more for activity, for sports and those sorts of things. The Isthmus Games ran there every two years, and everyone would come and see these athletic contests and come and bet on them and play with them and see all these fun things that were happening there at Corinth. It's also known for its immorality. Not just its richness, but how immoral the people were. And famously, there was this temple to Aphrodite that overlooked the city, and there were a thousand priestesses in this religion, and they did things that I can't speak about on Sunday morning. They were bad, immoral. And the city was known for that looseness, for for that they didn't really think it mattered, that things were that way. And so Paul arrived there in Acts 18, and you can go read Acts 18 if you're a Bible student sometime. Paul arrived there in, in Corinth, having come from Athens, and he went, and as was his practice, he started speaking in the synagogue to the Jews. And the, the man there that was in charge of the synagogue was named Crispus. And Crispus eventually got mad at Paul, said, you've got to leave. We don't like this message. Go away. So Paul moved next door where a man was there named Justice. And he began to be there. And he was there for almost two years. He knew the church. 
He knew the people. It was really interesting because eventually, as he was there next door to the synagogue preaching, the guy who tossed him out of the synagogue, Crispus, he got saved. He got kicked out of the synagogue. So you saw the message of Jesus Christ going out in Corinth and people starting to get saved and the church was there and Paul was there. He didn't say, okay, now you're saved and I'm gone. He lived with them. He was among them. Priscilla and Aquila, who he he lived with, were also tent makers like Paul was. So he was there with them and getting to know them and living as family. And, And so this place, particularly, was a place dear to his heart. When he left, one of the things we know, Paul wrote more letters to the church at Corinth than any other church. There, I think there were four of them, but we only have two. This letter, there was a letter, first letter, then this letter, 1 Corinthians, and then another letter, again, a letter that didn't rise to the test of time to be Scripture, and then 2 Corinthians. So four times. And you know, when Paul wrote that great treatise of the Christian faith, Romans, he was living in Corinth. Corinth is a special place for New Testament Christianity. So what I want to do is you walk in that, that knowledge of, hey, Paul really knew them. Paul isn't unfamiliar with them. He knows them well. Becomes important as you consider what he starts to say. So look with me. Just 1 Corinthians 1, 1. We'll start here. Paul, he says, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Okay, stop with me. So this is a little introduction. He doesn't say, Paul, your best friend. I, I know you all guys all well. I'm just writing to say hi. He says, this is a very important letter. It says, I'm an apostle called by God. And he was, right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. We know him. The, the name that's interesting to me is Sosthenes. Have you heard that name before? Again, if you're a Bible student, maybe you have. We're not sure it's the same Sosthenes. So I just, I walk with me a little because in Acts 18, when Crispus kicked Paul out of the synagogue, And then Crispus became a Christian, and he got kicked out of the synagogue. The person that took over from him was a man named Sosthenes. We're not sure it's the same guy, because there's only two mentions. But it's Acts 18. It's the exact same place, exact same stuff going on. And the interesting thing is, he was the guy who was so mad at Paul that he was sicking the authorities on him, and he had Paul beaten, and he, he was so against Paul, so against the message. And then here we have, in Corinthians... Paul's writing a letter to them saying, I'm with a man named Sosthenes. There's no other statement of who he is. And so it's like, well, maybe it can't be the same guy. I mean, but how cool if it is, isn't it? I think it is. Because really, it takes the whole message of the gospel, which is it takes people who are enemies of Christ. That was you and me. And your heart gets broken and you receive the Lord. And it's that kind of flavor as we walk in that I want you to be thinking of because I think Walking through this today, it's pretty amazing to see. The one who's proudly against Jesus, there's still time for him. No matter where you are in your walk or who you know in your life, and they're still alive and they don't like Jesus or they, they, they're against Christ, and yet they're still, their story's not done, is it? The Lord might be at work. Anyway, but we come to you and me who do know the Lord. And here's the word you need to have. First, there's two pieces for us, and then a third I really want to make sure we see through the book. First is that you and I are holy and belonging. Messy Christianity, but we start with holy and belonging. Why do I say that? Because he says this in verse 2. 
To the church of God, Paul writes, that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place, all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Then he gives this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to dwell today on the actual text of the Bible that he's writing. Do you see what he's saying? Sometimes we skip over. It's like, oh yeah, he's writing to Corinth. Keep going. Stop. Think about it. Focus in. Paul is focusing in on this church, these people that he knew really well. He spent so much time there, and he pushes them towards this particular foundation. Right? The church of God. Who are they? They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That means sanctified in Christ Jesus. That means they are holy in Christ Jesus. That means totally set apart. That means useful to God. That means able to enter into his presence, right? Because the God is holy and you're going to enter in his presence. You've got to be holy. He see, he uses this as a statement about what the church is. You. Me. Well, particularly them. <laughs> In a day when you're always a bit guilty on whether or not you're holy enough in your behavior, Paul takes it right off the table. I'm writing to the church of God. You know, the church of God, you're holy in Christ Jesus. And you could say, well, he's thinking of the Corinthians. Because there's this additional amazing statement, right? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. I found us. We're in every place. Called to be saints. But it's not that we're called towards something. It's called to be saints together. The focus is on, he's talking to the Corinthians, but he's saying, you're holy because you're in Christ. And everybody else who's in Christ is also holy. Because they call upon the name of Jesus. He's their Lord and our Lord. <laughs> this is an unusual greeting and an unusual way to open a letter. It's not normally like this that he called, does it this way. It means he's not just meaning this holy in Christness to be applied to the sort of Corinthian church like there's something special because that's what I would think. I would say, okay, I get it. Paul was with these people. He knows how awesome they are. Hold that thought because we'll get to that. But my thinking normally would be something along the lines of saying, okay, to the church of God, those holy in Christ Jesus, and he has his in his mind Priscilla and Aquila and all those really cool Christians who are in Corinth. And then we kind of do too because we have a hero mentality. We start thinking that it's those people out there back in Corinth who are really holy. It's not what he's saying. Because then he goes on to say, along with everyone else who calls in the name of Jesus, you're all holy. You are holy and you're brought into community together holy. So you look around, you're holy in Christ and you're called to it together with those in every place that's here, that's down the street, that that's in every church around. If you confess Christ, you are sanctified in Christ. Yeah, I'm looking at you. It's amazing. 
It's amazing he says that. And it's not our actions, right? It's Christ's actions, and you know what that means. You're incredibly, amazingly clean in the sight of God. And secondly, you belong. You belong in the family of God by trusting in what Jesus has done for you. This is the word of God that Paul lays out as he begins 1 Corinthians. So you're holy and you're belonging. So we, we take that in from Paul. But, but it's not just that. I think you should hear what he gives thanks for, too, because he continues on giving thanks. And it's about not just holiness, which you are, belonging, which you do, but then it's these other things that describe them and us. Here it is. I give thanks, verse 4, to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So he's giving thanks to God, and he's giving thanks to God because he gave grace to these people, particularly the Corinthians, in Christ. It was a gift. There's no earning. And he knows this church really well, so he's, he's thankful for the gift God gave him to know Jesus. That, he says in verse 5, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that, verse 7, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well, here it is, right? He says, oh, I thank God for the grace given to you. And then he kind of says what the grace is, what this gift is. It's toward us too. First, it says, we were enriched in all speech and knowledge. What's that? That's like you've heard, right? You've heard the story. You've heard the words of Christ. You've heard the gospel message. I was around you. I told you the full counsel of God. I told you all the things about Jesus so you would know about him. You heard the story of Christ. You heard his statement on the cross. You heard, it is finished. Oh, we hold like precious gems, these wondrous healing waters, who is Christ, the, the bread of life, who is Christ, the, these amazing things, the testimony of Christ that is finished, the testimony that God is pleased in his son to accept us in the beloved, with Jesus in his baptism, identifying with you and me and going down and my, the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, we may not have riches in this world, but we have riches in heaven. That's what he's saying, right? In every way you were enriched in him. The great and precious promises that we live by, the promises of Jesus Christ for us, you're enriched. I'm enriched. We're not lacking in any grace. We don't need more grace, more gift. You have it, surely, to hold on to. Like, like, like I thought about this, like waiting for a train to come. Sometimes we, we think we get, we're going to wait and we're going to catch a train. And we're sitting there at the station and all of a sudden I start worrying. Do I have my ticket? Do I got to go back up and get the ticket because maybe I don't have it. Maybe I've lost it. Maybe it's somewhere. And I'm always checking to make sure that I have my ticket. And he's saying, no, you have it. And he's even pointing forward, isn't he, to when Jesus is going to come. He says, in every way you were enriched in him, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you're, you're, you're waiting for the train to show up. And in the midst of that, you've been given all you need. 
Fantastic. It's not a loan. You're not going to pay it back. It's yours. And we're waiting for the Lord Jesus. I might lack food. I might lack a spouse or a child or a job or things in this world. But be of good cheer, Paul says. God has overcome the world. He proclaims his love for you in Jesus. And you have it. You have it. Salvation full and free. And I want you to see this isn't just enriching in some abstract sense to say, okay, great. Yeah, I I heard about Jesus. That's great, Paul. Then he, he gets more specific. He says, look, he, Jesus, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is this not amazing? It's a sustaining thing, right? The Corinthians, along with all the saints together, we await Christ. And as we await right here on this day, you and I have the assurance of two things. One is that Jesus Christ will sustain us. That's a lot different than I'll sustain myself. That's Jesus sustaining me. To the end, our hope is in his sustaining. Jesus, in all he has done, he will sustain you, says Paul. He's going to make you get to the end. I'm so happy it says it that way. He's not saying make sure you sustain yourself to the end. And then not just that. What is that they sustained in? Particularly, it's holiness. It will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holiness, sustained to the end, guiltless. Our Jesus, he makes us guiltless. That ought to make you stop. Is he saying Jesus, the one who sustains, the one who's made us holy, he'll keep us holy and blameless all the way to heaven? Wow, is that true? Well, that's what he's saying. He's not saying, don't get the word in, don't start thinking. He's saying we'll be sin free. I already said we're, we're imperfect people. It means there's a certain pathway we're on because of Jesus, you and I. Righteousness by faith, holiness by faith. And the faith is in Christ, and if you're there, he sustains you and he keeps you guiltless. We've talked about this before, mostly in light of Hebrews 9 and 10. And if we go back there and look, it talks about how Jesus is a sacrifice once for all for our sin. Jesus Christ, by his once for all sacrifice, has cleansed your conscience, Paul writes in Hebrews. Not, well, probably Apollos or Luke or whoever it is. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But he says your conscience is clean. By the blood of Jesus on the cross. So you have this whole concept that comes along about, man, it's not me. It's Christ who cleanses me. So my conscience, if it's clean, if I'm blameless or guiltless, it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus and his blood on the cross. Let me walk you through that just a tiny bit because I I think that if you're not careful, you'll not get it, how cool it is. Because if I was going to ride around on your shoulder for a few minutes, days, weeks, I could get out my notebook and write down all the things you do wrong. And I would be right that you do them wrong. Or flip it, and you walk around and around with me, and you're on my shoulder for a couple minutes, hours, whatever. You could do the same thing with me, right? And then you could come to me, and you could say, Dax, I walked around with you for three days. Let me give you the things that you've done wrong. And you could start listing them down. You were yelling at the kids last night. You know, they were trying to be kind, but you were yelling. You were you were impatient. And you would be right. What do I do? 
One way is say, well, I'm going to clean myself up. It's never going to happen again. It's not, I, I will, I'm repenting in ashes. And that's not a bad thing to do is repent in ashes because sin is terrible. But that's not your conscience being cleansed. Your cleansed conscience is I stand and say before you, you come to me and say, Dax, you did that. And I say, I did. And you know what? Jesus paid for me. My only hope is in Jesus and his sacrifice for me. So all those things that you did wrong this week, they're covered by the blood of Jesus. That's your cleansed conscience. That's your guiltlessness. Because otherwise, if you're being held guiltless, you got to think that what's going to happen here in Corinth is that we're talking about people who don't sin anymore. That's your other option. Your other option is he's going and he's saying, hey, I'm so glad that Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless, my precious Corinthians, because there in Corinth, you've managed to overcome sin. I think we ought to ask ourselves, who are these people? It's kind of important. So amazing, you know, I, if you and I really come to this point of saying, our trust is in Christ alone. It's Christ alone who paid for me. It's Christ's righteousness alone by which I will enter heaven. Then the struggle of our life is to stay there. I don't do it very well. I'm constantly thinking what I'm going to present to God is a bouquet of me. Here's my bouquet, God, of all the things I've done for you. And to think, no, actually, it's always Christ in me. And I'm always struggling to keep my hope on Christ when I'm so good at working on myself. But I believe this is what Paul is saying. This is this huge contrast in this work, is to say it is Christ alone. I want to point to that particularly now. I want you to see it. I want you to see the amazing thing that he wrote this. That they're holy and belonging These are Paul's words, that they're enriched and sustained and guiltless by Christ alone. These are Paul's words in the Bible. We might be tempted to take these as, these Corinthians are cool people. Man, I would like to be like them. Paul is writing this mighty letter of encouragement, and he knows them. And so I start thinking, which is why we need to think about and encourage you to read 1 Corinthians, the rest of it. We'll look just for a second. I want you to see that Paul is mad at these people. Think that through. Think it through that he's saying you're guiltless and you're sustained and you're holy and you're, you're, you belong. And at the same time, the rest of the letter, he's ticked at them. He's so angry at what they're doing. Yet he's calling them holy, belonging, guiltless. What? 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 Oh, they're a mess. So we'll be spending a lot of time looking at the issues that affected this church and how they might inform us. But the biggest and most important and emphasized and heavy message for you to take with all your heart is that they clearly are fantastically and miraculously in Christ, holy and sustained by Jesus himself. And so are you. But but let's look. Let's, these guys, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, they are a mess. They're a mess. Let's take a brief walk. We won't do a lot of it. Let's just brief walk through some content in this letter. Because he goes right away, right? First of all, these guys were in Division Central. Here's a one verse from first. Right away in first chapter 1, he's going to say, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. You know what? They told me you guys are bickering. And they were. Some people were saying, we like Paul. And other people were saying, we like Apollos, another teacher. And other people are saying, well, it's just Jesus, come on. 
And so they started getting angry and fighting and infight. That's called sin. Right? There they are doing it. It's it's terrible. They're arguing about who's better. You know that Paul cares more about unity than just about anything else? Try reading Ephesians and getting blown away in the first three chapters and then start chapter four. The very first command is walk in unity. And then his good friends in Corinthians, they're backbiting. Oh, it doesn't stop there. Here's chapter 3. For you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Jealousy? Flesh? you got to reconcile in your mind that he's already called these people that he's talking to sanctified, holy, guiltless, sustained, belonging. And yet they can still be jealous. Yet they can still be in the flesh. Yeah, and we fight against the flesh, but you can't miss this foundational piece, can you? How important it is. It's not just divisions. Look at this. In chapter 5, he's talking to people who are holy. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. Whoa! They have among them this boastful, proud, sinful immorality. Paul doesn't say, oh, you guys, you're in danger of not being holy. He doesn't say that. He's already called him sanctified. Starting the letter, knowing these things, that's what he's done. And yet at the same time, he hates. He's fighting against. He doesn't want. He's instructing them, get on this stuff. It's not just that they did this. It's also that they were starting to sue each other. Chapter 6 is that they they were so angry at each other, this church was, that instead of working it out together and talking through, they were taking each other to public court where they could just beat on each other. So he says this. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But a brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers? Okay, holy Christians. Your witness stinks. That's what he's saying, right? You're in front of other unbelievers and you're tearing each other down and you're showing how jealous and terrible you are. So in my mind, I start to forget that he's already at the beginning set this foundation. What are they? Holy. They belong to the church. They're brothers. It's amazing. This is who they are, right? I, I won't keep going in terms of putting stuff on the screen, but just think through it. You can walk through it yourself. In chapter 7, they're arguing about how often about marriage, how often intimacy has to happen. In chapter 8 and 9, they're arguing about what you can eat or not eat. Arguing. In, in chapter 11, they're, they're conflicted over however women should dress in church, like that's a thing. Chapter 11, in fact, there's a thing you probably have heard of, right? In chapter 11, he goes after them. He says, you know what? You guys... I'm so mad at you. What are you doing with communion? They're taking the holy communion of God that tells us about Jesus and we take it in and they're getting there early in the morning and the people that come there first are eating it all so that no one else gets any. These guys, that's, if there's something like that's about as terrible as you can think of, it's that. I'm going to prevent other people from taking communion. Wow. These people are Holy. Oh my goodness. 
They're really bad, too. There's some discord over spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and 14. In fact, they don't love each other very well at all, so it gives them this whole beautiful chapter 13 to talk about love. That's the Corinthian letter. Okay, I'm not trying to throw stones. I'm summarizing what Paul is going to be after as he goes through this letter in order to make sure you see they are messy like we are. They are sinning like we do. They're struggling with unity and practice and juggling and, and, and judging each other. It's not good. It's, it's bad. But this really brings into relief what, what we struggle with because Paul first and unequivocally says they are holy in Christ, sanctified and saints. They are kept by God, sustained by Jesus and guiltless. And when he writes that, he knows full well all these practices that they are doing right then. These arguing, disunified, immoral, taking communion wrongly people are holy in Christ. And so we've got to realize our holiness, our real holiness, is in Christ, not in ourselves. That when people sin, and they do, and you do, this is not taking away our standing before God. We belong if we trust in Jesus. These people who are messing up, they're not on the outside looking in. They're inside with you, belonging with Christians everywhere. Even the really crazy sinners that are talked about, even the ones in chapter 5 that talk about this incredible, you can read it, this incredible, terrible sin that these people are in, and they're proud of it. Paul says, put them out in order that the devil can work on them so that you can bring them back. He's not saying, kick them out and kill them. He's saying they may come back. We want them in. So if you're a crazy and conflicted mess this morning, you belong. It's like the woman of the night who comes to Jesus and she breaks his vial of perfume and she washes his hair with it. The Pharisees are so mad. How can you have a sinner around you? It's because Jesus died for sin. Sin's not the issue. The issue is trusting Jesus. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. Not so we can look around and see how godly we are, but we can marvel and receive the love of Christ. We have this promise, you and I, that Jesus will sustain us to the end. So we are a mess. And yet at the same time with the Corinthians, we're holy. We belong. You belong here. You are enriched if you understand this message. You are sustained by Jesus Christ, not by yourself. You're guiltless because of what he's done. And just think about Paul saying that to these people this week. Because if he's saying it to these people, he's saying it to you. I think of it a little bit like this, okay, you guys? I think of it a little bit like, you know, I like right now I'm on a rowing kick. I row on this little machine. But after I row on the little machine, I am sweaty. I am not somebody you want to be around. And in fact, my kids... Dad, ew, gross. Take a shower. They're right. I think myself, I smell. And so they won't give me a hug. They say, no, I don't want to hug you. You stink. But you know what? What if they saw me in tears and broken? 
What if they saw me as I really am? And they see the wonder that I, I get to be their dad. And every time they saw me, they just ran up and they didn't care about whether you smelled or not. They just grabbed hold of you and let go. Dad, I'm so glad that I get to be your kid. We should be like that with each other. That there's this underlying thing that happens, you see, that even though we don't smell very good, there's the wonder that we, in Christ, have something so amazing that we stop caring about the stink. We care about the reality. Now, does that mean you should never take a shower? Absolutely not. Go take a shower. And that's what he's going to say. There's plenty to work on, and we'll look at things we need to work on. He doesn't want them to be, he doesn't want them, does he, to be preventing other people from taking communion? Of course not. He doesn't want them to be in chaos or confusion or suing each other or immoral. But the way through these things includes this affirmation that it doesn't mean you're an outsider. You need to be part of the family. And the work of your life is to go ahead and hug people that haven't showered. I don't mean literally. I mean every one of us. Because the Bible is so clear that every day, every moment, you still sin. So, you're not very lovely. Oh, I invite you to that today. The welcome to the club, messy Christians. And we know from Church John 3, and I'll end with this. First John 3 says this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, it's coming. We will be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's coming, you guys. The beauty and the wonder of sin, sin freeness that's coming in Christ. Oh, I, who will save me from this body of sin and death? Jesus will. It's coming. Encourage each other. You need to.